0: Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Burn. (laughs) Truly, truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, I was probably reading that and some of you thought, I know that last verse. Uh, So the football verse, um, (laughs) as we call it. And uh, so you're probably excited that you know a little bit of the story. um, But uh, we're going to move through it today. It's a fascinating story. The next four Sundays in this Lent season, the lectionary gives us four uh, readings from the Gospel of John, and they're just so good. Uh, and we begin here with this pretty famous one from uh, John chapter 3, verses 1-17. through 17. Now, there are two descriptions at the very top of the text and the scene that I want to just work through just for a second. The first is that this man named Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Now, if you grew up in Sunday school, Pharisees were bad, right? Uh, but the truth is, uh, Sunday school is usually not entirely correct. Um, and so the more you dig into Jesus' relationship with these people called the Pharisees, um, it's, it's he loves them. Uh, some love him. Uh, he's friends with some of them. And some don't like him. You know, just life. You know, people, you like people, some people you don't like. Um, and so the Pharisees fit into a fairly normal category with Jesus, except that they are uh, a very scholarly theologically bright community of men. No women, men. They're not elected. It's a self-ordained fraternity of men, uh, as men often do. And um, these these people, these Pharisees, were one of the major, quote, schools of ancient Judaism. And they had been around, really, since uh, 150 years before Jesus. So the Pharisees are born out of some conflict that was going on uh, in the 2nd century B.C. And they were, as I said a second ago, no joke when it comes to being scholars of the Old Testament. And their ethos was very simple. And it was to seek clarity and to debate. And so they find clarity on how they were supposed to live out the commandments in their scriptures. That was their sole uh, and primary task, was to continually debate and debate and debate until they find some clarity on how do we live out these commands in our world. Now, this is mostly a response to the growing Hellenistic Greek culture of the ancient world. How do we be Jewish in a Greek world is what they're dealing with. And so they sought clarity, and that's a key word. The other thing that happens at the top of the text is that it says that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Now, we were taught as kids that he comes at night because he's... uh, He's afraid. He doesn't want to be seen with Jesus. And that may be the case. But as someone who uh, reads the Bible semi-often, um, John, John's gospel is just full of these little Easter eggs, uh, a really big one at the resurrection, by the way. The, um, the, uh, it's uh, it's time-change weekend. We got the jokes. We got all the stuff. Um, but John has this really creative way of retelling the story of Jesus. And one of the uh, devices that he uses is the time of day. If you just search the time of day and the, times that, and the places where John mentions the time of day in his gospel, it's always, uh, it's always connected to the faith level of the characters involved in the story. In other words, very simply put, the equation is if it's day or if it's light, Um, then that normally equals a faith that is vibrant, there's energy there, there's belief, there's clarity. If it's nighttime or it's dark, it typically means that the characters in the story are in a fog. There's confusion, there's disbelief and skepticism. And just for fun, uh, you can read through, and he does it in sequence. It's a very interesting thing how John almost moves in sequence, like, like this story takes place at night. The story next week in John 4 takes place at noon. The story that we look at after that takes place as evening is approaching. So he runs this cycle of day to night, day to night, and it's always connected to the faith uh, level in the story. And so in John's gospel, when stories unfold in the dark, we can assume that there will be little to no resolve in the story, only a continued sense of doubt and confusion or just plain old-fashioned uncertainty. So here, at the very top of the story, we are guided into this scene, being told that a man whose uh, religious ethos was one of clarity, one of being certain as possible in order that he might live rightly, comes to Jesus, quote, at night, in the dark. There's still some confusion. Something is bugging Nicodemus. About Jesus. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. The old preacher joke is today's sermon title is Nick at Night. Um, The old jokes are the best, right? What is bothering Nicodemus about Jesus? He approaches Jesus obviously as a representative of a community because he speaks in this plural. We know that you are a teacher that has come from God. And so initially, there's just an interest in Jesus. Uh, Jesus is interesting, uh, as Pharisees go. Jesus seems to be quite closely connected to them in his beliefs and theology, but he 's just enough in a different lane that he 's very interesting to them and so Jesus and the Pharisees are close in their thinking and so and yet Jesus has these interesting little exit ramps that that are uh, not necessarily concerning to Nicodemus, but he's interested in finding out more. And so he comes to Jesus and says, hey, what what's the deal? And again, it's not just Nicodemus. It's his posse. We, and they're not with me tonight because, you know, I'm the spokesman, but I want to know some answers to some questions. And so he goes to Jesus and he, uh, he, he uh, what's the word? I'm tired too. He uh, he compliments that's the word he compliments Jesus on uh, his you know his teaching, his signs that he's performing you're obviously from God, and Jesus seems to completely ignore that and goes straight uh, into what might be the very heart and mind of Nicodemus at the moment to the thing that he really wants to know is Jesus, what is your deal but he comes at him with his response, which is about uh, you must be born again. You must be made new. He says this to Nicodemus. Now this word, uh, to be born again, in the Greek, is, it has, has layered meanings to it, which is kind of rare for Greek. Usually they'll just pick another word. Uh, but this one has some layers to it. And Nicodemus seems to be hearing it on one layer, which is the word Again. It means to be born again or anew. And so he's hearing it there, and that's where he stops. The literal, you, you can be born again, again. But the other meaning is also from above, that there's a sense of divine uh, birth that's happening in your life, a new life, a new creation, so to speak. But he doesn't go there. Nicodemus' focuses only on the first layer, which is a rebirth, physical and so he's very confused by the wording. He's also confused by the reason. What's the reason for that? Uh, now, we live in a society where, now, when I was, when I was coming along, never thought I'd say that. Uh, <laughs> when, uh, when I, in the 80s, uh, it was very popular. This was the, really the decade where people really began to see their children as little gods. And, uh, you know, and, on the, on the cars was the little caution thing that said, baby on board, you know, which is what no one did in the 50s, because um, <laughs> the baby was just on the floorboard, is what, that's, <laughs> what it should have said, yeah, baby on the floorboard, playing with daddy's pipe. Um, and so there was this growing attention given to children, like, you know, we got to take care of them and stuff. Uh, Better than we have in the past. And so, uh, but in Nicodemus's world, children were not revered as anything special. They weren't even really considered members of society until they reached a certain age. And even then, the dad had to, quote, adopt them in to the family. It's complicated. So to be a child in the ancient world holds no advantages. Um, And so he's confused as well by the reasoning, like, why would I want to be a child again? Secondly, it's a culture on the opposite end that uh, admires age and wisdom. And as someone who has also worked his way up in the ranks as a Pharisee, why in the world would I want to go back to being an idiot child, when now I can walk into anywhere and I have uh, influence They did see themselves as privileged in many, many circles. And so he doesn't understand the reasoning of going back. Now, we love the idea of like, can I do over fifth grade? Because that was really bad. Um, He's also confused at the possibilities that Jesus is putting forth. Central to the whole dialogue in this chapter is Jesus' offer of a new life a new way of being, ultimately a new creation. And so what does it mean to be born again for Jesus? What is confusing to Nicodemus about this? Again, I think all of us would love to be able to go back in time and maybe relive a couple of years of high school or do that freshman year in college over again. Anybody? Is it just me? Um, As I get older, I'll be 47 next Saturday, um, I like offerings, so put those in the plate for me. Um, the uh, the uh, you know, as I get older and things just don't you know th- things hurt more, uh, you know, and literally like I'm in physical therapy now for things going on with my back, and like it's just you know no one you just start to feel like oh there's no going back to like being mobile. And um, I'm doing all the things I'm having, you know, I've done the x-rays, I've done, I'm in physical therapy, like I said, and, you know, it's just, it reminds me of this routine, and it's one of my favorite stand-up routines of all time, it's Sinbad, Afros and bell bottoms. And, um, thank you, and he has this whole bit about, hey man, when you're like 15, you get hit by a car, you just get up and keep going, you know? But if you get hit after you're 30, you just walk, you learn to walk different, like that's Does anyone know what I'm saying? Like this, I guess I just walk like this now. (laughs) The physical therapist I see attends here and she came in one Sunday and I just had my leg up on the pew stretching. She's like, what are you doing? I'm like, this is how I stand now. This is what I do. (laughs) Getting used to it. But Jesus is talking about not so much that, like a physical rebirth, but a whole new and fresh relationship with God, um, you know, I do a lot of weddings in my field of work, and um, when this isn't funny, this is a serious one. Uh, the uh, I've started to say things like, "Well, you know, as you get married, we've been married; it'll be 25 years this May." And uh, thank you. I like offerings. The um, <laughs> the. Uh, 25 years, we got married the week after graduating undergrad, so we just we've been together our whole quote adult post college life. And sometimes what I'll tell couples is like, listen, I've been married like 15 times to the same woman. And and what I mean by that is, and for those of you who are married, you understand this, the person you marry on day one is not the same person a year later, two years later, and they're different from the one that was a year later because we grow we, when you get married, it feels like stasis. You know, it's like, oh, this is the most incredible day. It's not. Like, it's going to, it's great, but like, it's, you're going to look back and go, I don't even recall that, because things change. You know, you learn to love each other all over again, year after year after year. And so, yes, Mickey married Derek Swetman in 1995, but I'm slightly different than I was in 1995, you know? I can find my keys now. Uh, So does that make sense? In any relationship, it's like that. It doesn't have to be marriage. It's like we've become friends again and again and again because we change. And so when we talk about this being born again, that is truly what it means to be a disciple of Jesus for years and years and years on end, that we are constantly... Growing and changing and re uh, being reborn year after year after year. It's why I love the church calendar and the way that we keep returning to the same texts and stories year after year. Because honestly, we come through those same stories different every year, and it means something different. And we reacquaint ourselves with the uh, with God anew every every year. And so Jesus is positioning this to Nicodemus. Like, you know, it's possible that as a Pharisee um, that you can experience a fresh, not so much a dogged, you know, uh, extreme focus on clarity, but that you can be born fresh again. This whole thing with God can be exciting for you again. It doesn't have to be a deconstruction drilling down to what the facts are. It can be mysterious like a marriage or a friendship. It can be ambiguous, like life. It can do that. This is, what, this is what Jesus is doing with all the Bob Dylan stuff of like, listen, don't worry about the wind. It does what it wants to do. And Nicodemus is like, this is not the conversation I was wanting to have. <laughs> but Jesus is doing this. He's doing this on purpose. He's trying to take Nicodemus away from uh, what, what he's trying to lock in about God and push him out into a bit of a, bit of, a, bit of a more fluid Situation where it's more exciting, and it's more relational. And a subversive act on God's part is to um, is to not cancel us, but to cancel our debts, our pasts, our sins, our shortcomings, and never hold those things in front of us as reminders of how terrible we are. You may have grown up in a church that they excelled at that. Here's all the ways that you're terrible, but instead. Jesus is talking about a God who keeps whispering to us the possibility of a new life that isn't chained or locked down to our pasts, but is a life that is lived forward into God's good future. And I think Nicodemus struggles with this the way that we struggle with this. The first reason for that is simply our culture doesn't really allow us to move on, you know? The whole thing now is like, hey, that didn't age well. (laughs) Of course it didn't. Nothing does. But our culture is not interested in allowing us to move forward and to be um, understanding about the ways that we fail. It doesn't like that. And when Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 13 that love keeps no record of wrongs, no one understood that. Then or now. Our failures remain on file. And so when Jesus is talking about a new life, it is confusing because we live in a culture and they lived in a culture that doesn't allow people to be made anew. You are who you are and you are your worst mistakes and you are your worst decisions. But the cool thing is there's no mention of Nicodemus' sins, his past or his tendencies toward wrongdoing at all. But we know this. He was a person, and no matter his upbringing, moral or no, people are generally prone to fail. Now, the Bible takes a darker view. People are generally messed up. And perhaps Jesus is speaking into those corners of Nicodemus' heart where he still doubts the grace and forgiveness of God, where Nicodemus still feels like he's on the hook for his past, and Jesus is saying, you know, that's not the way God works. And so let me close with this. John three sixteen and 17. It's a very interesting ending to our story. I want to read it again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, these two statements, they matter a great deal in this conversation. The, f- the first reason is simply they are shorthand. Verse 16 is a shorthand summary of the whole love of God. That for God so loved the world. The Greek word there is the word cosmos. It's not just people. It does mean people, but it means everything. Everything that he's created, he loves. It's good. Creation is good. People are good. God has a love for all the things that he has made. So it's a shorthand for God's love for the world. And then in verse 17, we see that what matters most to God is not judgment, but new life. Did you catch that in the verse? That Jesus did not come into the world uh, to condemn, but to bring new life. It it reminds me of, and I've used this before, but my my favorite bumper sticker that says, Jesus is coming, look busy. (laughs) That is not what John is saying. Jesus is coming, relax. The landing page on the website of Calvary St. George's in New York City, it just says, enjoy your forgiveness. Great opening page. And Nicodemus, uh, his very last words in the story, we have to back up for this, but it's in verse nine. He says, how can these things be? It's the last words. Nicodemus disappears from the scene. Now, I like that question. I want you to think about this as we close. It's a question of doubt. How can these things be? But it's also a question of hope how can these things be? You see it? And that's how we should leave the room today and the next Sunday and every Sunday thereafter, rolling over that question and all the things that we've heard and sung about, asking, how can that be? And when a story in John, John's gospel doesn't resolve, and this one doesn't resolve at all, it doesn't mean that The person in the story is still in the dark. It uh, it just means that the person is uh, is not bad or doomed. It just means that there's still some road ahead. Nicodemus will appear again in John's gospel two more times. In chapter 7, he will be defending Jesus in front of leadership. And then as Jesus is taken off the cross, Nicodemus is one of the two men who helped bury him. And so Jesus isn't this uh, kind of God who's like, "Hey, this is the line, and you need to cross it today, or I'm done with you." That's how we were taught. If you grew up in a nice evangelical tribe, we got to hit the beach with the cartoon tracks and you know interrupt people's vacation and say, "Look, I know it's a cheesy cartoon, but heres you here's God. Here's the gap with the fire. Uh, How are you going to build a bridge across? And you're like, what? And you turn the page and there's a cross-shaped bridge, of course. And uh, it's like, Jesus builds the bridge for you. Would you like to join the Jesus movement? Maybe you didn't grow up in such an exciting, (laughs) such an exciting time. But Jesus seems to be completely okay with saying, this is what I'm about. And we're like, I don't know what that means. And Jesus is like, cool, man. Just keep walking. Just keep following. You'll figure it out. And so it's Nicodemus has a road ahead of him. And Jesus is okay with the ambiguity uh, for now. How can these things be is such a good question. And the Linton road that we are on currently, it is for traveling with this question rolling it around in our heads, a question about the nature of God's grace in a world where such grace is very difficult to see. Amen.